Wait a minute, this sounds like rock and or roll. Welcome to Rock and or Roll. I'm your reluctant host, BJ. On today's episode, you'll get to hear a conversation I had with Sean Spillane. Sean was in a L.A. band called Arlo that signed with Sub Pop and released two albums on Sub Pop in 2001-2002. And they were a great band. Their second album, Stab the Unstoppable Hero, is one of my favorite albums of that decade. So... If you're not familiar with Arlo, I predict you'll soon be a fan, but trust me, you don't have to be familiar with the band to appreciate the story of how a band gets signed and what happens next, the ups and downs, what goes right, what goes wrong. Sean's the nicest guy in the world, and he was nice enough to share his story with us on the episode today, and I think any rock fan will be interested in his story, and his songs are great as well. He's been Recently, he's been recording soundtracks for independent films writing songs specifically for those movies, and those soundtracks are up on iTunes. You'll get to hear some of those songs, and you'll get to hear Arlo's songs, and you'll get to hear Sean's story. So, Also, when Sean talks about Nate, he's talking about Nate Greeley, who was the other singer-songwriter-guitar player in Arlo. And when he talks about Schmed, Schmed was the bass player in Arlo and also wrote songs for the band as well. Okay, hope you enjoy it. Did you guys start a band together in Texas, or did that happen when you moved to L.A.? Oh, that happened in L.A. We both were in um, the, we we're in the same dorm rooms at USC. Oh, okay. Yeah, or same dorm, same dorms. We we're right across the hall from each other and started hanging out. So you, you were both from Texas, but you didn't know each other in Texas. You just happened to meet. I think Nate did his senior year in California in high okay. school. Okay. Okay. Yeah, he was kind of new, but yeah. So Arlo started in college then? Yep. And what year was that? Uh, 1992, or I guess we didn't start the band. The Well, the early version of the band was called Otto, O-T-T-O. Okay. And uh, we kind of, I guess it was probably our, what would be, 
say maybe our junior year is when we kind of started playing together. Like we, we actually took like beginning guitar classes at USC and stuff to learn to play, like learn bar chords and things like that. <laughs> right. Like he could play the bass and I could sing. I, I, he played bass and like, I think he had this little band in, in high school that, that, uh, he played bass and it was kind of like a noise rock band. And then I, I like sang in a band with, you know, like a cover band with some buddies of mine in Texas. And so we, neither one of us played guitar though when we started sort of starting a band in LA. So really, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I didn't start learning yeah. guitar until college either. And I felt like I was way too late, but. I mean, it doesn't really matter now. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, we, we just basically like, we, we didn't care about being good. We just wanted to write songs. Yeah. So. Ex- yeah. That's exactly how I am too. I can't yeah. play I couldn't play a guitar solo to save my life, but yeah, it's just about writing songs. Yeah. I can't, I can't play a guitar solo. So, oh, I can kind of play one, but I, it takes me forever to record one. I have to do a million takes to get it right. And then yeah, right. figure it'll be sloppy as hell when I play it live. <laughs> yeah there's like there's two different there's the musician guys who are in it to play guitar and then there's the guys who are in it to write songs and playing guitar is just like the vehicle to do yeah. it yeah i mean well i figured also like what what's the point of learning to play a lead when it's done been done so many times you know like the with the sort of the eric clapton eddie van halen school of you know virtuoso leads like none of that really ever interests me you know, I was like, eh, yeah, I'll never be able to do that. And right. not, I don't particularly like those kind of leads anyway. So yeah, true. True. Yeah, I like the uh, Joey Santiago Pixies leads. <laughs> yeah. Right. Right. Being, like messy, like screwed up weird leads, you know, a little bit melodic, but also kind of a total mess at the same time. So you guys had been together like almost 10 years before you signed with Sub Pop or uh yeah pretty much we known each other for about eight i guess we known each other about eight years and then um as a band as like a i guess as like a functioning like playing around la kind of band we were uh, probably like five years really okay yeah so, so how did you end up on sub pop uh that's kind of a long story we well nate worked at a place called alias records it was in Burbank and uh, he, he worked in like the little warehouse part of it. And they were like this indie label. And I think the archers of loaf. Oh yeah. Up. Alias. Yeah. I know. Alias. Yeah. 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 Archers of loaf. And, yeah. and um, then actually Schmed who became our bass player later was uh, worked there. And anyway, this guy, Tony Keywell um, was, I think he was like the college radio liaison for alias. Anyway, those three guys got to be good friends and, um, Nate and I cut like a little four track demo of stuff while we were still in college. I think it was my, yeah, that was been my junior year. I bought, I got a, I got, a, I bought a four track and we started like, we had like a few little songs that we were playing. So we both recorded, we, I think it was like five or six songs. Um, and then we started, we just made cassette dubs of it. And then uh, I painted like little covers and stuff for him. And anyway, we started passing them around to people. And Tony got one. Tony Keywell got one, and he really liked it. And then he gave it to somebody else. Anyway, Tony Keywell ended up working at, or actually ended up dating a girl at Sub Pop. 
Okay. And later on, we, we did another, um, we did, we were doing an album for this little label called Waxploitation. And, um, we had like, we gave him some rough mixes that we'd done that were also on a cassette back in the cassette days. And yeah, so, yeah. Um, and he and his girlfriend took a drive up to Seattle from here. Uh, and they listened to that thing like the whole way up there, like the rough mixes of our record. And they really loved it. And when they got up to Sub Pop, I guess they were playing it in the office for some people. And Jonathan Poneman was walking by and was like, hey, what's that? And uh, they're like, oh, it's this band called Auto. We are still Auto at the time. And um, Poneman really liked it. And then stuff didn't, it wasn't going well with Waxploitation. Like they, it was only, basically it was only one guy and he managed producers and he put another band's uh, indie release out and he decided it didn't make enough money. So he was, he kind of got cold feet about releasing our record and so we sort of shelved our record and then Sub Pop was like wanting to sign us the whole time, but he wouldn't let us get out of our contract for a while. I've heard he that story before. So they recoup his costs on what he'd spent recording us and Sub Pop didn't feel like paying it as much as he wanted. So we, we sat in this kind of limbo for a while where he was trying to get assigned to a major label so he'd get his money back and, it was a total mess, and that happened. I think that went on for like a year and a half or something like that. And finally, he just let us out of our contract because he was tired of dealing with it. And about I don't know, we gave sub we gave Sub Pop a call. We called Tony or uh, actually Jenny Hayo, I think was her name. Tony might not have been working there yet, or maybe he just started working there. And they they were interested in signing us, and then we did a record for Sub Pop. That's a, that's long. a pretty familiar uh, record industry story of the. Uh... Tied to one label, trying to get out of it, not getting the shelving, the record, all of that stuff. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's funny that little like we were that that little album was was cool, but it was it was totally what Sub Pop had on their mind when they signed us. Like they wanted us to do something exactly like that, but by then we'd sort of moved on in our sound and and uh, like we're a little more distorted at that point and. It was it was kind of funny. They later on they were like when we were turned in our first record, they were they were, they liked it, but they were like, Oh, it's, it doesn't sound a lot like the last thing you did. And we were like, Yeah, we don't want to do that anymore. <laughs> so there's a there's a first Arlo album that was never released then? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. okay. Yeah. Wow. And that even... and that sounds it's more distorted and no, no, it's actually a lot cleaner. It's oh, it's all, a lot cleaner. Okay. We wouldn't use. Uh, we were. We had this weird thing. We didn't want to use um, Marshall amps on it at all. Oh, actually, that's part of it. When we were, they were trying to get us signed to uh, a major label. They had to do some demos that we were using, like Marshalls, and like they were trying to get us to sound like the Foo Fighters or something like that. And uh, and at the time, I really didn't like the Foo Fighters. I like them now, but. Uh, I was just kind of against sounding corporate and all that stuff. And it was just a bad experience kind of making those demos. And I just, for some reason, poured all my hatred into like Marshall amps. <laughs> <laughs> and I still don't have, I still never used the Marshall. I always use fenders and stuff, but we were, we were all about trying to sound like the Beatles a little bit, you know, just have that kind of sound or music. But 
then it then it went the other way where I wanted to sound like the the Flaming Lips and stuff. When we finally did the the album for um, uh, Sub Pop, I, I had this. I was like, okay, I want to go like ultra distorted, like use like just really weird sounding shit. So I was like listening like the first couple of Flaming Lips albums when I was when we were doing our up high in the night for uh, for Sub Pop. Yeah, uh, that's funny. That that's funny that Sub Pop preferred the first album because it seemed, you know up high in the night sounds like a much more classic sub pop sounding record i know to me yeah well they probably just were t- i mean at the you also remember like sub pop at the time was not i mean it still had a good name to it but i i swear most people when we told them we were on sub pop they're like oh that that label's still in business yeah because like, you were right before the shins yeah yeah, yeah this totally like brought everything back dude that's a funny story when the first time we heard the, I think it was at the end of our like our first tour or one of our first couple of tours, we were in Seattle and uh, our and our guy Tony um, was like, "Hey, you got to hear this new band that we signed. They, we they just finished their their seven inch, so he puts it on and it's new slang, right? <laughs> you know, and it yeah. was like, you know, and I, I was I was like, holy shit, man, we are doomed." Yeah, that song that sounds, is that's an amazing song. Yeah, that sounds the first of all that song sounds better than anything I've ever written, and <laughs> not only that, I was like, that's probably one of the best songs I've ever heard in my life. Right? <laughs> like, holy shit! Yeah, <laughs> knew it. Like we're screwed. So yeah, I was looking at the timeline. Um, Stab the Unstoppable Hero came out like right in between O Inverted World and the Postal Service album. So. You know, you guys were more of a classic-sounding sub-pop band, but you were there right when they were going in a totally different direction and, like, reinventing the label, kind of. Yeah. And like, you, you probably got it, lost in the shuffle. It was not even out of design. They didn't even, no, you know. No, 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 yeah. Like, kind of like, wow, the Shins album really did well. And then, like, the Postal... So, they also had this band called Hot Hot Heat. Right. And, and they were expecting Hot Hot Heat to be huge. Like, yeah, I remember how much hype they got. It. And then I remember talking to Tony at one point. And he's like, you know, man, we spent a ton of money on Hot Hot Heat. And, you know, it's doing okay. It's fine and stuff. But he's like, then we spent no money on the Postal Service. And it, like, can't stop selling records, you know? Yeah. <laughs> well, the problem was Hot Hot Heat just weren't really very good, as far as I remember. Well, you know, they were, I remember we played some shows with them. They were like a, a you know, fun, poppy band. But yeah, yeah, yeah. just didn't have that, I don't know, I guess we were kind of the same way. We just didn't have that, like, mass appeal that, like, really stuck around, which is, you know, it's fun. It was fine, but, you know, sometimes it's like, those are two, like, like, O Inverted World and the Postal Service album are, you know, still around. Like, people still like that and probably yeah. still will. They're pretty extraordinary records. Yeah, and it and I mean, that was like the reinvigoration of sub pop, and then yeah, yeah. And what, what were they gonna? They were busy with those bands. What were they gonna do with you guys? <laughs> I know, I know. When Stabby and Supple Hero was like, "Hey, uh, are we gonna do any like college radio stuff?" And they're like, "Well, we're kind of still working on the, the Shins album." And Post was like, "Okay, <laughs> all right, that's how it works." It's funny, man. When you get signed to a label, you think like. All right, we made it. And then you realize, oh shit, this is like just the beginning of all the real work that you're supposed to do. And now we're competing with everybody out there, you know? Right. 
really you're in the game finally when you get signed and then yeah it's like nope you're not going to quit your day job and uh things just got harder you're going to spend a lot more time uh worrying about music and playing music and kind of taking it as a job and not like oh well i hate this band it's fun i pick up chicks you know whatever (laughs) (laughs) well so those two sub pop albums they're really different don't you think i mean the up high in the night it's kind of an album with multiple personalities or to me stab the unstoppable hero is much more of an album like the songs really go together and it really flows and it just feels like i don't know what do you think about that um, yeah, I kind of believe, I feel that, like, well, I mean, all the Arlo stuff, like, sort of feels, you can hear the different songwriters, for sure, you know, like, Nate and I had, like, you know, complementary styles, but definitely different. Yeah. And, and then, uh, Stab the Unstoppable Hero, probably, and, and you can tell that on, we, we were, like, I mean, with Up High in the Night, you could also tell because whoever wrote the song was basically produced and recorded the song, you know? So, yeah, it, yeah, and, it does. It, they're saying leads on their own song. So right. that was kind of what happened with that. But then by, uh, and not only that, we'd recorded those songs a few times, some of those songs a few times already. And we were just, and we'd been playing them for a long time too. So when we finally did our own recordings of them, they had this, you know, we had a very specific sound we were kind of looking for, but then it up high in the night, or I mean, stab the unstoppable hero. We, we went in and tracked all the drum tracks, like in like a couple of days at, at a studio um, in Glendale, is this guy, Mark Lynette, who, uh, worked on like the, he's, he's done a lot of stuff like Beach Boys, Pet Sounds, uh, the, he remixed that into stereo for like their box set. Anyway, that's why I kind of why we liked working with him because he uh-huh. has this pedigree with like, you know, knowing Brian Wilson and George Martin and stuff. But, um, we, we tracked all the drums at, at that studio. So that kind of, I think, helps give the album, um, you know, a more cohesive sound. And then, uh, and also we'd been playing, we'd been touring and stuff. So we, we, you know, we had each other play on the on songs more often. And, you know, instead of like, I would do all the guitars on my songs, but instead I'd ha- do like, you know, sort of my parts, my, you know, kind of give it my flair for, you know, guitar parts. And then I'd bring in Nate and him, you know, him play his actual part. Whereas on the first album, we had played most of the guitars ourselves on our songs because we were so sick of like somebody really, we were sick of somebody telling us how to play our songs on that first record. And the second one, we kind of were like, Hey, we're a band. Let's play it like a band. Yeah. So. I mean, yeah, that all makes perfect sense to the way the records sound different. Like you said, you each produced your own songs on the first one. And it a lot of the times it wasn't the whole band playing on the songs and, yeah. Yeah, you, I mean, yeah, that's kind of, I guess that's what I was hearing. Yeah, you can also, we, we had never recorded anything like at that level either. I mean, we bought, I bought like a, uh, like a G3 Mac, you know, and we used Cubase and we'd never really used those pro, that program before. We'd never, I mean, we'd, we'd done like little four track demos and junk like that, but we never tracked you know, professionally tracked drums or anything like that on. And we, we kind of had to, 
figure all that stuff out like while we were doing it like the first couple tries on on some songs sounded really bad (laughs) right did a bunch of stuff on that first album where i mean i had stuff where i was had like two drum tracks like playing at the same time you know or i I was like man that (laughs) sounds cool i'm just gonna do that you know yeah (laughs) i just there were no rules we were sick of like like i said we were sick of somebody telling us like some producer telling us no you can't have you know, but I, I was like, I want like kind of distorted sounding drums on something. And they'd be like, you can't do that. I'd be like, why not? <laughs> oh, so, you know, they're like, you just can't. I'd be like, well, that sucks. I don't like thinking that I, have, I hear something in my head. I want, I want to do that. So it was sort of that attitude where it was like, no rules, just get it. Let's just do this album and let's feel good about the songs that we did, you know? So that's how that sounded so weird <laughs> yeah yeah so which which songs on up high in the night are your songs uh god it's forgotten yeah forgotten <laughs> Loosen up is mine. I think it's six and six. Oh, okay, so, okay. Yeah, I, I uh, loosen up, forgotten, uh, botched. Jeez, uh, what else is on that record? <laughs> <laughs> I haven't even looked at it in a long time. Uh, uh, Nerf Bear Bonanza. That's Kenji. Nate. Oh, Kenji's a good one. Yeah, Kenji's Nate. That was the actually Kenji was the first song we ever. Uh, Nate Nate wrote that song, and uh, this is back when we were. Um, we were playing little coffee houses and he wrote that on like a four in a four string, like G open G tuning on an acoustic guitar. Uh-huh. It was like the first song we ever had that was, was, was like singing and playing guitar. And then I was playing drums. So we played like, we like I had this little drum set and we would go to like coffee houses and open mic nights and play that song. 
That was kind of the beginning of everything, actually. Listeners, Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house, and my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles plus awareness mode, available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right. You'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Stab the Unstoppable Hero was co-produced by Ben Vaughn. Yep. Did he have a lot to do with it, with the sound of it, or? Um, he sort of was our guideline. Uh, you know, he wasn't. He wasn't. He was there when we tracked the drums. Uh, he actually he did. We did a lot of pre-production stuff with him, where he he sort of tweaked the the, the arrangements a little bit of the songs, you know, and. Because we'd, we'd play him the song and he'd listen to it and go like, hey, what about in this part, you know, if you go like right for the bridge, you do this real quick to kind of get us into the bridge. And he just had these little cool, you know, tricks that sort of helped the, the overall, uh, just basically just the arrangements, you know. And then, then he was there in the studio when we tracked the drums, um, you know, just helped to sort of help us pick which takes he thought were the best. We just, just kind of used him as a you know, kind of a mentor, really. Right. And and and, ha- and he definitely produced. I mean, he had something to do with it, for sure. Um, when we tracked the individual instruments, though, we did all that stuff pretty much ourselves. And then we brought Ben back in when we mixed and mastered it. He had a lot. He was, His ear was, was there when we were doing that. So Okay. I was looking him up. He had some, it looks like he had records in the 80s. Like, it sounds like he's kind of rockabilly sounding stuff. Did you ever hear any of his... Is that the yeah, same guy? He actually recorded a whole album inside of a car. 
<laughs> Ram for 65. Right. Yeah. I, I was listening to some of that on iTunes. Yeah. Yeah. He was, he had like some, you know, like some moderate success in the eighties. You, you know, he was like touring with the violent femmes and stuff like that. And he was like this, uh, kind of underground. I mean, I wouldn't say underground, but he was sort of an underground success, I guess. But Yeah, I think I had heard the name before, but I had never heard any of his stuff that I remembered. It said on Wikipedia he did some stuff with Alex Chilton, and, um, and he produced the Ween Country album. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that was, that was uh, right before we worked with him. Okay. He did that, or before we knew him or met him, and that actually was what put us over the edge and like, yes, we definitely want Ben to produce our record. Right. Because we love, we were huge Ween fans. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, yeah, I was like, I mean, that, I actually, I think I was the one, he, he produced the mixes of our first album. Cause it was a, like I said, we didn't really know what we we're doing and our stuff was kind of a mess when we got into near the end of the album. And Sub Pop was like, you know, this doesn't sound quite as good as it should. You know, like they're like, we like how it kind of how it sounds. It needs to be mixed better. And uh, we were at we were at like a friend of a friend's place or something. And Ben was there and we'd known him. He was he was uh, he'd been sort of involved with Schmed, our bass players, like old band called Holliston Stops. Like he was helped. Oh, actually, that's right. He he used them on a couple of songs. They they played a couple of songs for that 70s show, which Ben did the music for. Yeah, yeah. I saw that on Wikipedia. So, yeah, they did some some live stuff for him, and Schmed was sort of doing some session work for him, involved like for the, the the music for the show, like playing bass and guitar and stuff. So, I you know I just happened to be talking to Ben at the time, and Schmed wasn't in the band yet, I don't think. And I was like, "Hey, man, would you be? Could you listen to these mixes and just tell us what we you know what's wrong with them?" And from that, he ended up. We were like, "Can you?" help us you know and sort of produce <laughs> the mixes and then you know later on I, like for the second album it was like ben's gonna produce this album you know ben's gonna be involved with us so we don't screw this up <laughs> right and uh having him you know now it's, it was a much more polished and and cool sounding record you know it's just it sounded like that's that he had a lot to do with it sounding like a cohesive record as well i'd say too well yeah so. work, working with a producer as opposed to just doing it yourselves and yeah i mean it makes sense well you know i always thought like what a, what does a producer do you know right. like what every producer i'd worked with before ben had just sort of been like all they did what it felt like was go like do it again do it again do it again play it again play it again and that's like all that i felt like they did right i mean we hadn't worked with uh um anybody that well we hadn't worked with anybody that i like just respected like that you know mm-hmm. like i always felt like these guys like either they tech they know a lot technically about music like how like they're more like an, a glorified engineer like they know how to get the sounds or it was some guy that was like a friend of like the guy from waxploitation was this guy lauren uh who certainly couldn't even play an instrument and he was like producing our record and I don't even, I was like why are you even here you know like you don't even know you can't even play anything like it just didn't make any sense to me so I didn't even know what a producer did really I mean I know now but until I worked with Ben I was like oh they're just 
it's like experience and they're another set of ears and they can help us when we're, you know, or tell us, yeah, that's a, that's a great take or that's, and that's why. And, you know, or they just had, it's that, that like polished and experienced ear basically that we didn't have around. So having been there helped a lot, you know, a lot from him too. So, so my two favorite songs on stab the unstoppable hero are definitely culture and temperature. I love oh, those songs. Those are my songs. <laughs> yeah, I know. Yeah, those are my favorites. And also, uh, Working Title is probably, I mean, that's probably my third favorite. I don't know that. And, you know, Little American Stab the Unstoppable Hero, Run Around. You know, it's a great record, but do you want to talk about writing those songs at all? Or Sure, sure. Culture and Temperature are pretty similar in a way. I love those songs, though. I mean, if you want to talk about them. Well, those are written probably right around the same time, too. I mean, right. We were, we'd been touring and, uh, that was sort of, sort of the second We I think we started playing temperature. We were actually, I think we were playing temperature by the time we started touring. It was like a song that I wrote while we were recording, I think the first album. And we might've been starting to play that actually, um, quite a bit. It was sort of our closer song, some you know. It was or it was replacing "Sitting on the Aces" as like our closer. Right. Uh, sometimes uh, depended, like "Sitting on the Aces" or "Temperature" were almost always one of the closing songs. <laughs> I think I wrote not too long before we started. I think it actually that might have been written like right before we started touring because it was. It feels like it was one of those ones that sort of developed a little bit on the road a little bit. And then, um, yeah, I mean, they were both kind of. I was really enjoying like using the like the A or E to C sharp minor. I love that chord. Like C sharp minor is such an awesome chord, and I think I use. I'm pretty sure I use it in both those songs. <laughs> and they they both have like a huge chorus like a great hook yeah yeah it's all about i love writing big like anthemic choruses you yeah know? yeah it just feels like something about my brain's like okay you've got the you got this verse now let's freaking make everybody you know really happy or really let's make people just you know excited about this chorus it's, yeah it, that's that's what it, i was that's what i was gonna ask so you you come up with a verse you have a good verse and then you try to take that into the chorus is that how you write a song usually or the chorus probably comes first and then then you gotta like 
Like I or I don't know. It depends. I think actually, I think temperature. The verse definitely came first because it's that da 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 na 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 na. na. You know that yeah. was the first thing I came up with on that song. I know that. And then I don't. I think it was just out of pure you know accident that I came up with the the chorus for temperature, but. Uh, you know, just, it's such a simple thing. It's only a couple of, you know, different chords and, but it's all about the rhythm and, and the, you know, the melody vocal part that really gets it. Yeah. It's, uh, it's the melody. Yeah. The culture, culture, uh, I guess culture really started because of that riff that's at the beginning. Basically, I was playing that for a long time, trying to figure out how to make that into a song. Like, I just had that little hook in my, you know, I would, once in a while, I'd be like, God, can I write something? That one, I think culture took a long time to write, like, to finally get to where it was, you know, where it wanted to be. And then, uh, yeah, that riff was definitely, I guess they, they both were kind of verses first, and then the choruses just came after. That's kind of funny with those. Because a lot of my other songs, they start with the the choruses. Like, okay, I got this great chorus. How do I figure out the verse? But, huh, that's funny. I've never really thought about that before. But, <laughs> well, yeah, it's fascinating how a song is put together. You know, I mean, it, you know, just like how you're saying culture. You just got that little guitar lick, and you're like, that's really cool. I want to use that in something, and then you end up with that song. You know, it's. I mean, I love the way that happens. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's sort of the. It, you know, it's the ones that you keep playing over over time, or those little riffs that you just try to figure out how to. And it's like someday, sometimes that piece of the puzzle comes really fast, and it, you know, just you can write. You're like, oh, I got this cool thing, and then you, you know, you add that other part to it, that chorus or the verse part, and then you go, oh, okay, that's that's the song right there. Okay, that's good. But there's those other ones that you're like, God, I know this is gonna be good someday. I just can't. <laughs> think of the right thing and it's almost like your hand has to your ear has you have to be in the right mood or your hand has to accidentally go to the like the wrong chord one time to go like oh yeah yeah yeah. you know it's funny now i write a lot more in my head than i do on the guitar you know like it's like i'll sit outside and you know not even with a guitar in my hand and just kind of think about the different chord changes are how I want to sort of hum it to myself. And then I'll go back in and try to figure it out, you know, 
but back then it was pretty much all about like just playing it and playing it and playing it and playing it until it, until it comes, you know? Right. Yeah. Those are a couple of my favorites too. I like culture and temperature a lot. Really love, love, love enjoy it. I still like listening to those once in a great while. Yeah. And they, I mean, they sound great on the record and everything. It's just, you know, it's all really well done. Yeah. That's funny. That record is like, Ben was the one who convinced us on the, like the first record, Nate and I share songwriting credit. Like we just split all the songs 50, 50. It was like, okay. And then on the sec, on the second album, we had Schmed wrote some of the songs. Uh, he, you know, and, and it was like, Ben, Ben was sort of, I think he was kind of trying to protect Schmed a little bit by saying like, you guys should each keep your own songwriting credit, like credit. And not share with the band, which I think may have been one of the things that sort of ended, led to like the demise of the band, I'd say, because then it became this sort of competition instead of all being like together to go, hey, let's let's all, you know, let's all get do well. Then it became, you know, all right, I need to get as many of my songs on the record as I can. Right. like I was the least competitive out of, out of the three of us. I, I, I always kind of had like, I mean, I'd always played sports. I had always been like, Oh, we're on team. It's a team. So we do, you know, we're all, we're all in this together. And it's funny. I only had three songs on the second album, <laughs> you know? So, yeah. But they're probably the three best. <laughs> but, but you know how much that pissed the other guys off when sub pop was like, okay, so, uh, the, the, you know, okay, Run Around is our first thing as a single, and then Culture is the second single. You know, and then like they're like, you know, people are always asking to hear Temperature. And, you know, like it, they like the, and then Working Title was the song that got licensed for this movie and stuff. Like it was, this, it was my songs that kept getting attention compared to the other songs, and they just were like, it, would, it totally drove them crazy. Nate and Schmega just. <laughs> I could just tell they're pissed half the time, you know, like, cause like, why does everybody like those songs? What about my songs? You know? But, uh, I was like, well, you know, if you're going to do, if I was only going to get three songs in a record, I, I did a few, my three good ones, you know, I right. guess. Yeah. Whatever. Yeah. I think I would, I would say it's probably, in my opinion, a band should share writing credit. That's always trouble when they split it up, especially when, one guy ends up making all the money. You know, yeah. you see that so many times with bands where, you know, you see the cars and those, the other guys are still out there touring for years and years and, and Rick Ocasek doesn't have to because he made all the money, you know? Yeah, and yeah. And that just seems to me like a terrible situation to have happen. Well, it's one of those things too. Like if you, if you, uh, you know, if you're the main songwriter and then you just hire a band, you know, and they're guy, they're basically just session guys that are playing with you. I get it there. Yeah, I get, I understand that. Yeah, it's like a bunch of guys that you're, you know, kind of in the romantic sense of a band where it's like, hey, it's a bunch of my, they're your, we're friends and we all contribute to making this band what it is. Then it should, it should be all split up because it's, you know, it's all about your contributions and like live and like what the, you know, the entire image and feel of the band is, you know, I, I totally get that. That'll probably never happen to me again because it's sort of a youth thing. You know, you meet the guys in college or in high school or, you know, they're like your best friends growing up and stuff. And, 
Like, yeah, I mean, now the guys I play with are like, oh, yeah, that dude plays bass. All right, I'll come and do something. And I try to pay them so they don't <laughs> ask for songwriting credit. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Or it's or I already have a preconceived idea of what I want in my head, and I usually play most of the instruments on stuff that I do now, unless it's something that, you know, I just can't play, or I feel like somebody else might play better. But you know, pedal steel can't do it, so I know somebody who does it, and I bring them in. But right, right. So usually the pedal steel doesn't have something to do with like the main hook or chorus of the song. It's like kind of window dressing that just ups the production value or something, but. Yeah, I mean, I always felt like the bands that that did really well or ended up sticking around together are the ones, first of all, that have like an equal financial stake in it. And also guys that have known each other since before, you know, usually people that knew each other when they were like 14. Because then it's it feels like, you know, you could you could get angry at somebody that you knew since you were 14 and be like, you motherfucker, and be pissed at them. And then the next day you're like, okay, you know, or you could have a, like a fist fight with them and then you, but you just know deep down in your heart, you'll, you'll still be friends with them. Like guys that you meet in college, you didn't really go through, you know, the shit that you did when you were growing up with your friends when in high school. So you don't, there's not that quite that trust there. You know, it's not the same thing. Like, well, it's not like we would never be friends, you know, like, so the guys you meet in college and after that in adulthood, it's sort of like, ah, screw that guy. I don't ever want to talk to him again. <laughs> you know, like if, if they piss you off, it's, you know, it's different. It's not, it's not like that old, you know, like think about all the people you grew up with that you, you know, had those disagreements with, but you're still friends with them. You know, even you might not talk to them all the time, but you would still consider them a friend, you know? Yeah, bands. When you once you get all the you know the financial crap involved, it's like everybody starts looking at each other sideways a little bit, you know. Yeah. So it's touchy. It's a touchy thing. But, so the, yeah. So like was, you said, you said that splitting up the songwriting, you thought that was kind of the undoing of the band. It was the beginning of it. Definitely. So was there ever was there a third Arlo album that was in the works with Sub Pop or? Yeah, there we did a third record. They just didn't like it. I didn't like it really. Okay. <laughs> At that point, we we were like developing into like three totally different songwriters. Like I still kind of had the the indie rock, but am the sort of anthemic indie rock thing going on, and then. And but and Nate had sort of moved towards where Schmed songwriting was, where it was very, very like almost over the top poppy, and um, you know just like they were both listening to a lot of ELO and uh, they just wanted to be more. I think they they kind of wanted to be more commercial, really. Like they sort of were making a conscious decision to be. Uh, also we, we, we were kind of using, we're starting to want to do more like elaborate arrangements and, um, the stuff just be started becoming a little more mid tempo and sub pop. When we turned in our record, sub pop was just kind of like, this isn't the band that we signed. You know, you guys are like, a, you're like our kind of hard indie rock band. Like you said, like sort of the classic sub pop sound, you know, and we had morphed into like this, uh, shit i don't even know it was just kind of this over the top um and also we we had this guy peter reardon um uh produce it the schmidt and and actually he was a guy okay i gotta start from the beginning 
when we were doing our our stuff for wax exploitation, doing demos, uh, this guy Peter Reardon was producing for us, and he was this really great engineer. Um, but he, I don't think he was the right producer for us. And he was the one who was kind of making us use Marshalls, and he was sort of hired to make us try to make us sound like a like a major label band. And you know, the, it didn't work out, and we we didn't. I didn't have any you know problems with him personally, but I was like, this just wasn't a good working relationship musically. And so years and years go by, and then Schmed starts. You know, when we're working on our third record, right before it, Schmed had been doing session work with Peter, trying to do like you know commercial stuff, like music for commercials, and they were doing all this crazy stuff. And Schmed kept saying how much he really liked working with Peter, and. He was like, you know, he could do a really cool album for, you know, he could produce a really cool album for us. And Nate and I were kind of like, nah, I don't know, man. And then somehow he convinced Nate that it was a good idea. And I still was on the fence. about. I really wanted to produce it ourselves at that point. I had this idea that we were going to do like our, our pet sounds, like, because we had been recording shit on our own for so long at that point that we were getting really good at it. And I was like envisioning using like our friends and doing like these big things where, you know, a room full of guys with like percussion and, you know, at our house and just recording the thing, like taking our time with it and doing like this, these crazy big wild arrangements that, you know, still had sort of an indie rock feel to them. And anyway, we ended up working with Peter on that record and, uh, and it got it was it was lofty and you know grandiose and we were trying to do uh sort of our like a pet sounds kind of sounding album but it just didn't really turn out that way it ended up sounding um kind of just emotionless it just it, we and Schmidt ended up playing a lot of the instruments on the record cuz he was the session guy and Peter was like well why wouldn't you have your best guitar player you know or best bass player, best keyboard player play on it. You know, why would anybody, and then he was just having me and Nate sing on everything. And so it just kind of came off being uh, like, I don't even know how to describe it. It just didn't have any kind of emotional quality. It sounded too, too polished, too regimented, too perfect. You know, it kind of lost the rock and roll vibe. And I think it came through sub pop, you know, listen to it. We're like, we don't like this. And at that point they were basically like, okay, we don't feel like doing another album with you guys. So it ended. And then we were like, let's not continue this relationship anymore. Let's just break up. So, and that, that record was completely finished or, well, it never was, it was, it never was like completely mixed and it never was like, it was never mastered. So, I mean, some of the songs were like good rough mixes and probably would have, gone on to become you know pretty decent sounding songs but it just yeah they we they wouldn't give us any more money to mix it that's one thing and then yeah we were kind of i don't know at the time i was in a sort of a state of denial and i was like no this is a good record and you know like even though in the back of my head i knew it wasn't i just i was like maybe people maybe people will like this maybe cuz i'm not that into it doesn't mean other people won't like it or fans won't like it but it just it kind of had lost we'd had a lot of fights and stuff and the band just we weren't getting along we were actually doing a lot of drugs at the time too and it was just bad like we were we kind of all that touring we'd we'd been doing for like the 3 years before 
had sort of taken its toll on our relationship as friends and, you know, and it just, it was rough. And we didn't, we weren't getting, we were watching like the shins, you know, blow up and other bands that we knew do well. And we were sort of just staying at the same level and it was hard, hard for us to take our egos and, you know, and we were all looking at each other like, maybe it's your fault that we aren't a big deal. You know, like we were kind of pointing fingers and stuff. So it just wasn't, it wasn't healthy at that point. And we were all like, let's, let's just not do this anymore. And kind of all went our separate ways. Do you, do you have any of that, that third album, that last album? Yeah, I do. Would you, you want wanna, to, would you, yeah, I'd love to hear it. Yeah, I can send it to you. Okay. Would you mind if I played one of the songs maybe, like at the end of the show? Yeah, I play, uh, there's one called Love the Fall. Play that one. That was okay. the first one we did off that album, and it was actually really encouraging. I thought, wow, this album's going to sound like, we're going to sound like the zombies or something like that. Yeah. And then all the rest of them, you'll, you'll see. You'll see what happens. Like, uh, <laughs> it just becomes over, like, it, it sounds like a completely different band, you know? And also, right. you can just hear by that point, like, the obvious difference in our songwriting styles, you know, like we were all like kind of going in, we we're just like three, three guys that should have been, had our own bands at that point. You yeah. Know? So yeah, I'll, yeah, I'll send you that stuff. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'd love to hear it. Um, I People, mean, especially here after hearing your description of it. So, I mean, I'm dying to hear it. Well, the funny thing is like the people that do own it, like have had it over the years are, they all think it's like this a masterpiece album. Like our friends that like we're like, oh, here's the you know the rough mix of this thing, and we were at that point since Sub Papa rejected it, we we all had kind of come to the conclusion that maybe it did suck. Yeah. But but the funny thing is, people were always like, oh, that third Arlo album, and maybe that's because it never came out. You know that it's got this sort of mystique that yeah, they're like, yeah. oh, I love it, I love it. I mean, I still listen to it and cringe. <laughs> but what was other- it? What was it called? We never even named you it. You never like, named it. It was like number three. You know, <laughs> I, I always call it like three and out, you know? Yeah. So it's like, it's just, you know, it did, we never even got that far. We didn't even do any like, you know, cover art or anything. And Sub Pop, was, so Sub Pop just pulled the plug and then, yeah. And then you just broke up. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I don't want to keep you too long, but we definitely got to talk about your soundtracks that you've been doing. Yeah, yeah, go ahead, man. Well, and, not... I mean, after Arlo, I saw something on, there's a documentary about the kiss or kill scene. Was that, were you involved with that? Was that after Arlo or? Yeah, well, while we're in Arlo, we, we, we started playing at this place called Mr. T's Bowl in, um, in Highland Park, California. I mean, it's just this suburb of LA basically, or this inner little subdivision. And uh, that's how we got, good at playing live we played there every tuesday night for like four years like we just that's that's what we were doing in between when waxploitation or while we were on waxploitation and then also in between the time when they dumped us and then sub pop picked us up and because we, we just decided like you know we we're sick of first of all like playing in la where you, know, you play like once a month or something and you have to call all your fucking friends to come and, and they just get sick of doing that. You know, they're like, Oh, I've seen you guys like last month. And it's hard to build a fan base in LA. So we were like, well, maybe we try it the opposite way. We just play every week somewhere, which nobody did at the time. And we had this relationship with that place. Uh, the sound guy, his name is Arlo. That's who we ended up naming the band after. Cause he always like 
loved us. Oh, okay. Uh, anyway, so we started doing that every week and we started bringing other bands in and then, uh, we played like we, or it was us and like two other bands, our friends bands that we started doing that every week. And, slowly we started adding more bands and then we had this epiphany one night where it was like we should have like seven bands play on tuesday night and we each do like you know 30 minute sets and then you know we got like think about it you got like seven bands you have four people in each band that's 28 people if they bring a couple of people you got like 50 people it just you know it would start we're like we'll have the room packed you know or at least enough people to make it worth playing to people so uh that started this thing and it, and it became really popular. And that, you know, when sub pop signed us, they came to watch, that's when they came to see us play. And it was, you know, the place was packed and we looked like this, like, you know, freaking rock stars there. So, uh, and we were definitely like the most popular band out of that scene. You know, we were just sort of, we had the best songs and we were doing all the best stuff, but, um, and we were, you know, and we'd been together longest, probably we were the most polished, I guess. But uh, we got good. At, you know, that's how we, so we how we got to get good at playing live. But once we started touring, that you know that kept going. It sort of took on its life of its own, and then and then it finally kind of faded out. But there were other bands that had been coming to those shows, uh, and they you know, there were so many bands involved in it that it was hard to to get to a slot to play at, on those Tuesday nights. So there's these other bands that decided to do the same thing just at another place in LA and subsequently at this, they started doing this thing called kiss or kill. They were smart enough to name it. Right. Like even name what we were just like Tuesdays at Mr. T's. I mean, we, <laughs> we were so terrible at marketing. That was, the <laughs> thing was just fucking awful at it. But, uh, these kids, these other people were like good at marketing and they started this thing called, you know, kiss or kill. And, they, I think originally you had to have a female member in the band to be in, to play on that night. And I think they, you know, they got rid of that rule later, but, um, you know, they, it was like more of a punk rock kind of feel to it also. Yeah. And, um, anyway, they started doing the same, basically the same thing. And the documentary actually talks to me. I they entered me, interviewed me and some of the other guys from Arlo and, and, uh, you know, people who were involved in the Mr. T scene. Cause that basically was what spawned kiss or kill and kiss or kill took on a life of its own and it got, you know, kind of big also it did like did a lot of the same stuff. And, uh, and then of course imploded in the end, but, um, you know, it's just that, that was, I was in a band called Midway and I sort of joined that band at the very end of Arlo and I was just playing guitar in it. They needed a guitar player and I'd heard their, EP played over like at Mr. T's actually. I heard it like the, um, it was playing and I, my Arlo was playing it, the sound guy. And I was like, what is this, man? He's like, Oh, this is band Midway. They play here all the time. And, uh, he's like, you haven't heard of him. Uh, I've been out of the loop a little bit. So I saw on Craigslist one, one night while we're in the studio that they were looking for guitar players. So I, I was like, screw it, man. I need to get out of this studio. Like, environment and play i just wanted to play have fun with a you know playing music again and uh so i joined that band and just you know was they already had sort of a following too so we uh had a lot of fun playing with them for a while and um you know we made a record and stuff like that which never came out and actually <laughs> another album gonna, that never came out huh? out soon it's been like five years we just did a re, like our final reunion show 
we hadn't played in five years or something like that or four years. We just finally did a sh- played a show for the release of that documentary, that DVD, and uh, I was like, "Can we release our record now?" And everybody finally was like, "Okay, yeah, yeah." You know. All right, kids. The time has come for the icing on tonight's kiss or kill cake. Here they are, the three ring circus that is. write songs on that midway record um i became i was kind of a that was that was a most of the songs had already been written but i wrote my guitar parts okay and um yeah i didn't write any songs like like start to finish on that record that, that was a very democratic band yeah and you know and i came in and they had like a pretty unique i would say it was kind of like uh the cars like sort of like the cars with the girl singer okay say. It had more of an '80s feel to it, like yeah. but a little bit of a punk kind of thing going on. I don't know. They were it was a fun band, good songs. Our singer was amazing. Her name's Teresa Espinelli, and she was just the best front person I've ever played with. Like she just commanded the room so well. Anyway, so that 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 happened, and and uh, it went it ran its course, and and then all of a sudden I just sort of wasn't playing music. Like I just wasn't doing anything. I was still writing songs and recording songs myself just at home for fun because I couldn't, can't help doing it. It's just what I do. Yeah. And then, um, a guy I went to college with at USC who played in bands and stuff back then, but he's a, he was a, became like a horror director, Lucky McKee and, um, in doing the Arlo thing. And it was all, I, every once in a while I'd run into him at, at like a show we played in LA or something like that when he was still living in LA and, he, uh, you know, he was always just very, you know, he was a cool guy too. I always like, you know, respected him. We, we always had cool conversations about music and art and stuff like that. So he was just this guy I had respect for. And, and I'd seen one of his movies called May, which I thought was incredible, really great movie. Um, and Anyway, he got me, hit me up on Facebook one day in like 2009 or yeah, I guess like late 2009. Um, and he was like, yeah, you know, I'm writing this script and he's like, you got any new music? I really need, I love listening to stuff. He's like, if you got anything new, I'd love to hear it. And I sent it 
send him some stuff that I'd, you know, had for like some of it I'd recorded, you know, a few years before, but, um, a couple of recent things and, and he just flipped out over it. He loved it. And, um, he ended up like, he, you know, he got back to me. He was like, God damn, I can't stop listening to these songs. And it's like, they're, they're making me change the way I write this, like certain scenes. He's like, I hear these songs being in scene, you know, in parts of this movie that I'm writing. And I was like, Oh yeah, cool. He's like, do you think I could use these songs in the movie? And I was like, yeah, please do. You know? So it started there. And then his, the, the composer that he usually worked or the person did music for him, um, worked with once the thing started going into a, looking like it was actually, the movie was going to be made. Um, they had a little bit of a, or she just didn't want to do it. Like she was like, I don't, you know, I don't really want to do this movie. So he called me up one day and was like, Hey, Sean, do you want to, uh, do you want to do the music for this movie? And I was like, hell yeah, you know, absolutely. He's like, well, here's the deal. We're shooting it in Massachusetts and I want you to come. Or first, I think they were originally shooting it in Michigan, but anyway, it ended up being in Massachusetts. But he's like, I want you to come out while we're shooting the movie and then set up like your stuff and record and write, write and record the music while you're like there out there with us. And, you know, like, you know, you'll come to set every once in a while and sort of just get the vibe of everything. And I was like, yeah, that sounds great. You know, that sounds like a lot of fun. So it ended up being in like Turner's Falls, Massachusetts, which is like Western Mass. And, you know, this beautiful little part of New England, you know, just Uh all green. And anyway, they set me up. They were shooting at the high school. Um, in town and they, they basically were using like the school gymnasium during the summer as like a sound stage and for what some of the scenes. And then I set up in the music room in the high school with the, and the sound designer was also out there too. And we ended up, we were rooming together on the set and, or, uh, you know, in the dorms that they had for us. And anyway, we ended up becoming really good friends. And then I just started like, Oh, that's all my job was for, you know, um, like a month was while they were like, while they were all shooting the movie, I was recording and writing and recording music all day and by myself, just in that music room all by myself. People like when they were shooting there, people would pop in and, you know, and kind of listen for a minute or just watch or hang out for a minute. But for the most part, they were shooting all around town. So I was just there by myself and, it was the best feeling ever to get up in the morning. And all I had to do was get up and play and like write music. Right. And re- it was, it was like amazing. And, uh, like I remember thinking like, I feel, I felt like I was getting away with something like I <laughs> yeah. sort of like guilty in a way because all these people were like working there. I'd see everybody at night, you know, at like 11, 10 or 11 or something. I'd head back to the place we we're staying or I'd head over to where the like lucky was staying that like he was staying at this place that had like this cool porch and they'd be outside drinking and talking, like watching dailies or something like that inside. And so I'd go over there like, you know, every other night I'd say, and, and watch dailies and just get like some of the vibe of what the, you know, what the movie looked like. And, you know, they would just trigger things for me to work on the next day. So, and, and here's the other thing. Lucky just wanted songs. He didn't want any like score, like regular horror mu- music. You know, right. he was like, I want you to write just, he's like, think of this almost like a solo album for you that is, you know, kind of inspired by what you're, 
your event, like your experience here. And I was like, all right, I can do that. So I just started writing whatever came to me, you know, or been recording all kinds of stuff. And, and I think I, cr- I, I think I ended up writing like 25 songs or something like that over that span of time. And, and if we, we ended up staying there for like, I think an extra month. And so I was still writing stuff. And then we went out to Oklahoma to, to edit the movie and I was writing there. And so it was pretty much like three and a half months of me just getting my only job was to write music and record music. And it was the best feeling ever. And it was the, definitely the most like creative, you know, it was like a creative epiphany. I just like went crazy. You know, it was like, there was all this stuff just itching to get out of me. And, uh, yeah. And then, so the, you know, then it all it ended up in the woman soundtrack, you know, a lot of it. So, yeah, it sounds great. And that, um, yeah, that's a great way to write music is just, um, to, to have a purpose for it and, and inspiration. And I mean, it's a different yeah. way to write songs, but yeah, I mean, it must be so much fun. Well, yeah. I mean, it was like, a, it was funny when I was dry, I drove all like all the way across country to get there. Right. And I was, the only thing I was worried about, I mean, I'd been, you know, I hadn't been writing like, like prolifically, you know, at all. And honestly, every time I sat down to write when I was home and before this project, I was like, I was trying to write something that nobody would ever heard before. I was almost trying to do something that was completely impossible. Yeah. And like, I was just putting all this sort of pressure and and there was no like specific inspiration. It was just like, I feel like writing a song. I'm going to write a song. And so it didn't have this, any kind of like purpose or direction to it. And the stuff I was coming up with was okay. But I, while, while I was driving across the country, the only, the only reservations I have is like, wow, shit, what if I get out there and I just can't think of anything good to write, you know, or it just doesn't, I get right block or something. And then I sort of thought about that, like, well, you know, over the hours and hours and hours I spent by myself driving across the country. I finally just came to the conclusion, conclusion. I was like, I'm just going to write and not give a shit what it is. You know, just, I'm just going to write songs and have no, you know, it doesn't have to be the greatest. If I want to, if a country song is what I in my head, then great. If it's like a folk song, if it's some indie rock thing or whatever, you know, it doesn't even matter. I'm just going to sort of take songs where they go. And that was basically what I did. And it, and it just worked and it's worked ever since, you know, it kind of just, was you know so the way i do things now it's easy it's not easy to write songs but it's definitely not as hard as it was for that period after arlo and and you know midway and stuff it was it's just you know now i have the confidence where i can just oh yeah i can write a song it's not a problem and you know just let things be what they are you know and not it doesn't have to be a you know a smash anthemic hit or something like that it doesn't have to change anybody's life you know, it just, it just can be a song for a song's sake. Yeah. So, so then so, you've done two more movies with him, two more soundtracks. Uh, well, uh, I did, uh, not with, not with lucky. Oh, I those did, are with different. Okay. Different, di- different directors, uh, same producer. Okay. Okay. The producer, Andrew Vanden Houten, uh, like the whole time I was doing the woman thing, he was nervous as hell. He was like, wait, uh, he would come in and listen to stuff and he'd be like, where's, you know, like, he's like, yeah, that's a neat song and all, but you know, are you going to do any horror soundtrack? Kind of stuff? <laughs> yeah. I was like, nope, that's not what he wants. You know, like it's not what lucky wants. He wants songs. And he was seriously, he was crazy nervous about it. He was like really worried. And then 
once he saw how the songs worked in the movie, he was like, oh, shit. And then his his girlfriend, his wife now, but his girlfriend was like, these are really good songs, man. You know, like, come on. These are this is going to be a really great soundtrack. And then he was like, ooh, a soundtrack. <laughs> right. Like, oh, shit, we could we could make more like money in a different way for this movie. Like this <laughs> could actually be a soundtrack for this. Holy shit. So, yeah, he, now he loves me. Cause you know, it's all about like the soundtrack, you know, you know, the movie. And then he's like, like the second movie I did was called ghoul. Right. And that they were like, we want, you know, like eighties music. Like it's, it takes place in the eighties. So we need eighties sounding music. And I was like, all right, I'll do that. So I just wrote a bunch of songs. Like that's, you know, reminding me of the eighties or like kind of using that sort of eighties feel that, you know, that I grew up with basically. Yeah, po- like Poverty Sucks is very new wave sounding. Yeah, yeah, totally. And it's also, dude, Poverty Sucks is about, basically there's a poster my friend's brother had when I was growing up in Texas in his room that was like just, to me, like totally personified the 80s like Republican asshole thing. It's like this guy with like riding boots on and like a tweed, you know, yeah. jack. He's like he's standing in front of a Rolls Royce with like holding a glass of like a martini or something and underneath <laughs> it said poverty sucks. Oh. <laughs> like, yeah, and that was like where that song like complete I was trying to figure out like lyrics and shit for that. It's basically just about an 80s asshole. You know? <laughs> like that's you know this guy like you know or like like a Patrick Bateman from American Psycho kind of guy, you know, that like Yeah. He's, you know, yuppie financier guy that, you know, all he gives a shit about is money and that's it. You know, it's all about his possessions and materialism and shit. That whole that whole ghoul album is just totally tongue in cheek. It's right. everything is a joke. You know, it's basically kind of making fun of the eighties. But I wanted the songs to be catchy too. You know, so <laughs> yeah. When I first listened to Let's Be Friends, I remember my first impression was I think it kind of sounded like a Misfits song, maybe just the melody or something. But it's more like a punky new wave song. Yeah, well, actually, I was kind of going for Devo a little bit. Right? But, yeah, I can hear that yeah. too. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, but yeah, that, like the I got that's um, the guy who sang on that was this guy named Patrick uh, Patrick Jones. He's a, he's a um, the lead singer in this band called the Mormons. That's like a, an LA band. They've been around for like fifteen years, and they dress up like 
Mormons. They they wear like the bike helmets and like the white shirts with ties and, backpack <laughs> and stuff. Uh-huh. But they're this awesome. They're an incredible punk band. Like they're really really good. And uh, they've like I said they've been doing it for like 15 years. I've known them since they were like in high school. Like they were playing with us, uh, you know, in those early Mr. T's days and stuff like that. So. Um, yeah, I, had, I was like, God, that the, like his voice would be perfect for this. So I had him sing on that, and uh, and it was. It was. Just, I love that song. It's fun. So that was Ghoul, and then Jugface, um, same producer. He was like, he he sent me the script, and he was like, you know, Andrew was like, what do you what do you think of this script? And I I thought the script was incredible. Like it was one of the best, most well written script I've ever read. And and while I was like, you know reading it, I had these ideas for music, and I met the director while we we're at Sundance, and. Uh, I convinced him in a drunken sort of barrage that I was like, oh, I got to send you some stuff. I got ideas. That script is incredible. You know, and I was, it's like when I get home, I'll send you this stuff and I'll, I'll write, I'll record some shit and send it to you. So as soon as I got home, I started working on some stuff for Jugface. And then uh, like the day, like Chad Crawford or Kinkle was the director. He, he like emailed me. He's like, are you going to send me something? And like, I replied with like six songs of stuff, you know, I was like, here you go. You know, here it is. And then he was like, oh, I like it. All right, you can do it. You're, you'll, you do the music. So that's the third one. Yeah. Now I'm do some more. And that, that I mean, Jugface pretty much just came out, right? Like last yeah. month? Yeah, yeah. It came out. Yeah, I love Awake. That's kind of a folky, folky song. Yeah. The first yeah. song. Yeah, that one's fun, man. Uh, that, that song's actually a song that the chorus of that song has been kicking around in my head forever. Like that, that one is probably like 10 years. It was, that's exact perfect example of something where I'm like, I couldn't figure out the right thing to put with, you know, that, that hook. Right. You know, that, and when I started working on jug face, it just, it all of a sudden it came out, you know, and I was like, finally, there it is. All right. So we're great here. But uh funny thing is it's not even in the movie. It's just at the, it's in the end credits. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Some secrets you've been wanting to spill. La la, 
that Jug Face is more. I mean, there are songs in the movie, but they're more of they they are background. It's not really. Uh, it's not like the woman or something like that, where the songs are sort of part of the character. This Jug Face, it's like uh, the the country songs that are they're on there are um, are all sort of like one a couple of them playing like in the background or you know over like the intercom in a like a pharmacy and stuff like that. Like, uh-huh. There's one scene where the girl is stealing a pregnancy test, and that's where the song where it's like, oh, oh, baby, sweet baby. You know, I just wanted to have something that has, like, baby over and over and over, and, you know, (laughs) saying baby as much as possible while she's stealing a pregnancy test. (laughs) Yeah, it's fun to to get to do shit like that. That's that's cool. But, uh... So, so you... So some of the songs you watch the movie and then... and And write it with a certain scene in mind? Yeah, 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 yeah. So yeah, that, I mean, that must be a really fun way to write songs too. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's really, it, it's inspiring too. Because you just, I mean, I needed something. You know what? Like, well, here, here's how, here's how it comes about. The thought process. It's like, okay, we live in this sort of small rural town, and what would be playing over the intercom? You know, or over the, like, you know, just in what <laughs> would they have in a pharmacy in that kind of a town? Probably. Yeah music or at least be you know actually nowadays it'd be some terrible terrible <laughs> shit like kesha or something like that but you know i wanted to i was like i don't want to do anything like that but uh then i want i kind of wanted to write another country song and i was like all right let's let's do this you know here's, here's one and i wrote another one that's sort of more mellow it's called whip wildcats and it's just very you know then but the, you know the other parts of the movie it was sort of this backwoodsy feel and i wanted something that was kind of a twisted bluegrass kind of sound and you know and all everything was all about the lyrics are all about like the death i mean i think i say the devil like in all three of those like weird bluegrassy songs and uh you know it's all because it's all heaven and hell and devil and you know god and the devil and you know it's just how i what i think of when i think of like backwoods people right it's very religious and and uh you know god-fearing and you know, and I watched, uh, you know, I listened to a bunch of bluegrass and shit like that for this. And I watched like, you know, Winter's Bone and mm-hmm. um, what's the other, uh, Wild and Wonderful Whites. Yeah, like, yeah. A few times just kind of getting ideas and shit. So, yeah. But Jug Face is fun. I'm, uh, Jug Face is like kind of the score for it, like the actual composed score is, uh, my whole thing was this time I wanted pretty much nobody to talk about it. Like I wanted it to be effective in me. One of those things. Cause you know, you'll see most movies and they rarely, unless it's like a specifically a music type of movie, you don't really hear anybody say anything about the score. It's either effective or, it, or it pisses people off. Like if it's <laughs> yeah. you know, like, Oh fucking the music for that movie was terrible. I couldn't, it just was so it's grating or it, you know, it took you out of scenes. I was like, my goal for Jug Face was to let the music just complement what was on the screen, and you would almost not even notice it's there. It's just, you right. know, you're feeling the emotion of what's going on. So, I think I think I accomplished that. I hope I did. But you know, I also had to write write songs so we could do a soundtrack. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Andrew's like, all right, I can't wait for this Jug Face soundtrack before the movie even was even shot. He was like, I can't wait for this Jug Face <laughs> soundtrack. I'm like, no problem, dude. So, did he got you on the hook for the next one yet? Or, 
Um, actually, the movie they just did was called uh, All Cheerleaders Die, and it was Lucky and this guy Chris Sievertson. They co-directed it, uh-huh. and um, they Lucky wanted to use me, but he they kind of became this agreement early on when they were working on the movie um, that they they wanted to use people that neither of them had ever used before because they didn't want people with you know a relationship like with them that would you know only listen to one and not listen to the other one you know when you have a co-directing situation and you have people you've worked with before you tend to work with the person who's more or listen to the person who's you have like the better relationship with you know right so they wanted to work with people they hadn't worked with before at least in like the kind of the creative areas where you like the dp you know director of photography and the production designer and um Actually, they did use the same production or a production designer that Lucky had used before. But for music and stuff like that, they wanted to use somebody they'd never, neither of them had ever worked with before and, and for the director of photography. So um, they used a different guy. But they this then they also wanted a lot of hip-hop for the movie is basically what they, you know, described as far as music and I don't really do. I, I tried, you know, I did some hip hop and sort of submitted it to, for them. And, and they chose one of my songs for that movie, which I am totally happy about. And it's, it's a crazy, crazy song. It's called fuck. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, yeah. It's, it's, it's a, it's probably the most ridiculously commercial uncommercial thing. I mean, there's no way you will ever hear that over a broadcast station because it, you know, it has the word fuck in it, but, over and over again too uh <laughs> but it's probably the best it's probably the, the song that i have i've written that's most likely to be heard in a strip club someday <laughs> so yeah it's, it's it's gonna be it's a fun movie it's premiering actually at uh toronto film festival like i think tomorrow night it's okay. like a, it's like the midnight madness part of the film festival and they're I, I saw it like a couple of weeks ago or actually man, it was like last week I went and saw it while they were mixing the movie, doing mixing the sound and stuff in LA. And it's, it's fun, man. It's really fun. It's going to be a good, like, I think people are going to dig it. So, uh, yeah. So that's the composing thing. I'm working also, we're going on a documentary right now, uh, called I want to be an astronaut that, uh, this guy, David Ruck, is doing and I'm doing the music for that. And it's about a kid who's always wanted to be an astronaut and he's done everything he can to try to get there. So it's kind of a total change of pace as far as what I'm used to working on. It's, it's going to be fun to finish that. It's very, are you writing songs for that or is it more music? That's more score. It's just, it's just kind of that, you know, kind of backgroundy kind of stuff. Yeah. But, uh, I'm actually going to, uh, I'm going to probably release it. I, well, I want to release an EP in some, some later this month of some music that I've been doing, like just a, like four or five songs that I've been doing in between like these projects or songs that just weren't used in the projects and stuff. And they're good songs. They just didn't, you know, fit in a movie or anything like that. So, and I'll just release that under my own name and stuff and put it out on iTunes and probably send out some Facebook notices. <laughs> right. <laughs> but it's all about like I just want to keep cranking out music. I love writing, <clears throat> so um, yeah. So have you been have those soundtracks been selling on iTunes? Yeah, I mean, I think the I think the the woman soundtrack has done really well, and it's it's funny like that just keeps going. Like 
the women's soundtrack, I get people from all over the world, like finding me on Facebook and saying they love the, you know, they saw the woman and now they bought the soundtrack. It's crazy. Like just last night, somebody from Argentina, like got a hold of me and there's people in, you know, all a lot in England and, um, Spain and Brazil actually. Uh, yeah, the woman soundtrack, like, well, my buddy who, um, who's a DP actually worked on the woman also, but he lives in Brooklyn now. He's like, dude, the woman soundtracks like our, you know, like our soundtrack of the, the last two summers, dude. He's like, we'll go to the beach and like throw it on, you know, at the beach or we'll just all be hanging out. And somebody be like, Hey, put that woman soundtrack on, you know, like they just, people just dig it. And like, actually some kids from Sweden, um, these artists from Sweden just got a hold of me recently. And like, they, they're like, we listen to it constantly while they're like working on their stuff, like, you know, making art and stuff. Uh-huh in their studio and shit. And that's, that kind of shit is the best. Like, I don't, you know, nobody makes money off music anymore. Really. It's pretty too. And you know, the, the soundtrack, I love, I mean, I, I want to do, I really want to do film scores and stuff like that. I mean, I feel like that's what I'm good at. And you know, when you get, but when you get somebody who's like, you know, telling you like they, they use it and it sort of helps inspire them or, you know, like things like that, that's, what I've always been in music for, really. Hey folks, Stefan Shirazi and Renee Richardson here from the Metallica Report. And we are proud members of the Pantheon podcast family, where the best of music and podcasts unite. We've got something pretty cool for you. We're giving away an exclusive Metallica merch package worth over $250. That's a whole lot of scary guys, skulls, M72, and other sought-after Metallica swag. And we've made it easy for you to win. Follow and share the Metallica Report, and you're in the game. Go to pantheonpodcast.com slash Metallica, enter your email, and hit that button to be entered to win. And just like that, you're eligible for our monthly exclusive Metallica merch package. And guess what, rockers? You can enter every month. So just do it. And while we love our global brothers and sisters, the lawyers won't let us ship outside the U.S. So before I let you go, I'll ask you, who are your favorite bands or your, the most inspirational bands for you or most influential God, let's see. Um, well, I'd say the Who have to be up there, right? For sure. Um, 
I put you on the spot. <laughs> no, no, no. I'll just kind of go there. Like, well, the, the first album I ever got was the Rolling Stones Tattoo You. Yeah. Uh, like, the Stones have always been kind of, you know, been there. I love the Stones. And, um, you know, I think Beatles as well, but Beatles came later. Bob Dylan has always been a big influence on me. Um, and then, jeez, uh, like, Guided by Voices, definitely, right. you know, in the Pixies. For yeah. sure. I love the flaming lips. Uh God, what else? Johnny Cash. I mean, Willie Nelson and Johnny Cash, for sure. You know, as I've gotten older, especially like Bob Dylan, Johnny Cash, and Willie Nelson, as I've gotten older, I just like I find myself listening to that stuff so much more than anything else. It's weird. Uh-huh. Like uh you know, when I'm just like screwing around around the house, you know, throwing like, or if I'm working or something, I'll put on Johnny Cash. It feels like I get a lot done with Johnny Cash. And then, you know, if I'm cooking or, you know, taking a drive, you know, or long drive, I'll listen to Bob Dylan for some reason. And, uh, yeah. And then Willie just, I just like hearing Willie's voice, (laughs) (laughs) but, uh, yeah, I don't know. It's, it's kind of there's nothing like special about what I I mean I also like listening to um I watch a lot of movies and I've always loved the way you know like Neo Morricone uh the guy who did stuff you know with yeah. mm-hmm. good the bad and the ugly and things like that I've always been just I love the way he makes music like what his style like he doesn't have like an overall style it's like each movie is completely different for him he does so many different great things you know from good the bad and the ugly to like cinema paradiso are completely different styles you know and yet they both have the same kind of melody and just beauty in their own way so i mean that's that's another thing and who else do i who else do i really like who else am i influenced by i'd say uh guys like mark mark mothersbaugh you know yeah He's he's incredible. I mean, and that's I mean, I've always loved Devo too. I mean, when I finally figured out that it like holy shit, he's a guy who does all the stuff for Wes Anderson movies and he was in Devo. That's yeah. cool. Yeah. You know, that that was I mean, I've always like wanted to do even when I was in the band, rock and roll band, I was I, I always kind of wanted to do music for TV or something like that. Cuz I just I love I love movies, I love television, good television shows and I love music and it always kind of just felt like a natural thing you know and then you found your way into it that's pretty cool yeah 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 it did and then it's like uh yeah been haven't stopped being happy since i i mean the woman working on the woman was probably one of the best artistic experience it was the best artistic experience i've ever had in my life just overall i mean and and one of the best experiences period you know as far as like being around the people that i was around and in the area and just you know it was like it was like in the most incredible summer and like productive summer vacation I've ever had. Yeah. That I got paid like a little bit, a bit of money to do, you yeah. know, <laughs> it was incredible. You know, we, we like all the people that worked on that film are still kind of like keep in touch. It's wild. You know, you run into them, you're, you know, you just have this other kind of bond with them. So yeah, it's cool. But anyway, I don't know. I think that's it for, for influences oh. yeah i always wish i you know what the funny thing is i always wish i could say something more interesting but 
Oh, yeah, we would have to say the Beach Boys, too. Yeah. That is definitely... Anyway. Jeez. Hey, BJ, if you ever come out to L.A., you know, with the family or something, oh, call, we'll have lunch or something or dinner or something like that. That'd be awesome, yeah. So there you have it. I hope you enjoyed it. As I'm sure you can tell, Sean Spillane is a great guy. He's made a lot of great music. He's got a great story. He's still making great music. Check out his soundtracks. They're all on iTunes. The Woman, Ghoul, and Jugface. If you just search Sean Spillane, S-P-I-L-L-A-N-E, on iTunes, you'll find all three of his soundtracks there. And both Arlo albums, Up High in the Night and Stab the Unstoppable Hero, they're also available on iTunes. So if you like what you heard today on the show, please go to iTunes and buy Sean's music and support the arts. And speaking of supporting the arts, an uh, old friend of mine, Scott Kaczynski, um, who's also a big fan of the show. In fact, Scott is the only person who has taken the time to go to iTunes and rate the show and leave a comment on iTunes. And Scott... For the last couple of years, he has been making a movie. He wrote the screenplay, and he's directing the film, and it's completely shot, and he's trying to finish it up. He's trying to raise some money for sound editing and some other things, and he has a, a Kickstarter project going. And the film is called Trust, Greed, Bullets, and Bourbon. And if you go to Kickstarter and search Trust, Greed, Greed Bullets, and Bourbon, you should find it on there, and I will also put a link on the blog. You can go to rockandorroll.blogspot.com, and I will put links to Arlo and Sean Spillane's music on iTunes, and I will put a link to Scott Kaczynski's Trust, Greed, Bullets, and Bourbon Kickstarter. He's trying to raise $7,500. I think he's over 6000 now. If you want to support an independent filmmaker who... He, up to this point, Scott has put a lot of his own money and his own time and effort into making his own film, and you have to respect somebody doing something like that. And if you can go there and give him five bucks, ten bucks, it would be a great thing to do and just contribute to a great artistic project that somebody is taking the initiative to do on their own, and it's a great thing. And I urge you to go to Kickstarter, Trust Greed, Bullets, and Bourbon, and Chip in five or ten bucks and help him out to finish up his movie. Uh, the film stars Max Casella, who was Doogie Howser's best friend on that old TV show, and he was also in The Sopranos and Boardwalk Empire. So, you know, you can watch a trailer for Trust, Greed, Bullets, and Bourbon on the Kickstarter page and see what it's all about. And if you chip in some money, Scott's got some little gifts he'll send you. If you chip in like 20 bucks, I think he sends you a digital digital download of the film. So go check it out if you're interested in supporting something like that. And thanks in advance. And like I said, Scott's a fan of the show. And, you know, he's a huge music fan, rock fan. He's played in bands over the years and everything like that. So go check out the, his his Kickstarter page and, you know, chip in some money. And like I said, please go to iTunes and buy Sean Spillane's music. The soundtracks are great. The Woman Ghoul, Jugface, check it out, you know. And if you like it, buy it. And... So you heard me talking to Sean earlier about that third album that Arlo recorded for Sub Pop that never came out. They never even named the thing. Well, Sean was great enough to email me those songs, and I mean, that makes this show all worth it. You know, I call myself your reluctant host because sometimes 
I question my own motivation and the time and effort I put into this show and why exactly am I doing it. But I, I feel like I'm doing it because I want to make the podcast that I want to hear because it's not there. When I, when I went to iTunes and tried to find a great rock and roll podcast that was the kind of podcast I was hoping to find and listen to, it just wasn't there. And so I eventually, after a long time of thinking it over and trying to figure it out, I eventually tried decided to try to do it myself. And, you know, hearing a guy who was in a band like Arlo and had a couple albums on Sub Pop and then disappeared, and then he resurfaces doing these really cool soundtracks, and just to hear his story, it's the show I wish I could go find on iTunes and listen to without having to do it myself, but I'm doing it, and... You know, I Sean, I think enjoyed it, and I think it. I think it's a great conversation we had, and I hope that you found it interesting, and I hope you liked it. And if you're waiting and waiting to hear that song from that unreleased Arlo album, well, to play us out. What does that mean? To play us out. I don't know what that means. To play us out. What does that mean? To end the show? Yeah. I'm going to leave you with a song from that third unreleased Arlo sub pop album. You heard Sean suggest the song to play earlier in the show. It's a song called Love the Fall. It's a great song. There are a lot of great songs on that album. I like it a lot. So here you go. Arlo, unreleased song from the third Sub Pop album, Love the Fall. Until next time.
be back. I'll be back. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.